Welcome to the Urgent Matters podcast. This is a series where leading experts from around the world share with us their latest insights into overactive bladder. I'm your host, Professor Paul Abrams, and I'm delighted that you have joined us for this latest instalment. Our first episode gives an overview on the overactive bladder, and I should like to welcome Professor Christopher Chappell, who is Professor of Urology at the University of Sheffield in the UK. He's also the General Secretary of the European Association of Urology. He did a higher degree in bladder pharmacology and is hence a a great expert on the overactive bladder. He's gonna give us an overview that covers the range of overactive bladder, including the basic physiology and pathophysiology, the etiology, how we assess a patient and how we manage a patient. I think it's very important that we remember that overactive bladder is a very common condition and large surveys of the population have shown that the prevalence is about 10% in the whole population. This rises, of course, with age, and so the patients we see in the clinic or in the hospital have a much higher prevalence of overactive bladder. At all ages, it's roughly similar in men and women, although over the age of 60, it becomes somewhat more common in men. So, Professor Chappell, thank you very much for joining us. And we'd be grateful if you would give an overview of overactive bladder, how the patient presents to us as clinicians and how we manage them. Thank you very much indeed, Professor Abrams. And as you say, overactive bladder is a common condition in the population. And certainly, as you emphasise, it affects both sexes. Of course, it's a non-specific symptom complex and not a condition as there are many different etiological factors which contribute to the symptom complex. Urgency is the pivotal symptom, in other words, a compelling desire to pass urine which is difficult to defer. And it's that urgency which triggers patients to go to the toilet and which is so very troublesome because if you get caught short doing activities of normal living, It's, of course, extremely embarrassing, particularly if you have an incontinent episode. Of course, incontinence is less common in men because of their strong bladder outlet at the bladder neck, of course, the prostate and the distal sphincter mechanism, but does affect around 30% of women with the symptom complex. Urgency, of course, is a sensation, so it's perceived in the higher centres and the limbic system. And all the time that somebody has the bladder filling, there are impulses going up to the brain through the periaqueductal grey matter, which eventually reach a uh, a threshold. And once the threshold is reached, there's a sensation of needing to pass urine. In normal circumstances, that can be deferred until a socially convenient time. If you can't defer it, then of course you get urgency, And if you can't get there in time, urgency incontinence. The limbic system has a negative inhibition on the pontine mictrician centre. And it's something to do with lack of that mechanism which produces the symptom complex. And of course, there are many different conditions that may contribute to that. Although, fundamentally, it's very likely that there's a neurological basis in most people. Clearly, This can affect 
both men and women, and indeed in many men presenting with so-called BPH, which again is a non-specific symptom complex, it's the urgency, the frequency, in other words, the overactive bladder symptoms that actually bring patients to see us as clinicians. The next question is the link between overactive bladder symptom complex and bladder overactivity as defined urodynamically. And of course, yourself and your department are really one of the leading centres in that area. And it's work from your department which showed that only around 40% of women without urgency incontinence, but with the overactive bladder symptom complex, who have detrusive overactivity. If they have urgency incontinence, it's 60%. And the analogous numbers in men are around 60% if they're dry. And of course, if a man has urgency incontinence, it's very likely they have detrusive overactivity. So 90% of men with urgency incontinence, unless they've had prior surgery affecting the bladder outlet, will have detrusive overactivity. So fundamentally, I think we need to think of sensation and we need to think of urgency as a pivotal symptom and treatment that we use is directed at that. Although a misnomer is that we're actually targeting the detrusor muscle, I would suggest to you that most therapies do act primarily via sensory mechanisms. Their action on the detrusor muscle is a so-called bystander effect. Thank you very much. I think it's important that you've emphasised the symptom of urgency because, of course, without urgency, you, by definition, do not have overactive bladder and you should not be treated as such if you're a patient complaining of other lower urinary tract symptoms. So, Chris, how do patients present to you uh, with their overactive bladder and how do you go about diagnosing them? Thanks, Paul. I, I think... That's a very important question. Although overactive bladder, as a non-specific symptom complex, can be suspected at first sight from the history, I think it's very important to recognise that the bladder is an unreliable witness. The symptoms that we record, whether they're storage symptoms, as in overactive bladder symptom complex, voiding symptoms, as a predominant in male patients, or post-mictrician symptoms, which occur in both sexes, are really not diagnostic of the underlying pathophysiology. Indeed, patients will often report the symptoms in very different ways. And as clinicians, we interpret them based on our knowledge, our perception, and our own bias. So it's very important to have a structured approach to the management of the patient. Of course, a history is very important physical examination, check there isn't a palpable bladder, and of course, particularly in the female patient, to consider the degree of pelvic organ prolapse, whether there's a palpable abnormality of the urethra, whether the bladder is painful. And certainly, it's of course then important to emphasise to patients the importance of a bladder diary. A bladder diary allows the patient, at their own time, but over a at the very least a three-day consecutive period to record when they void, the volume voided each time they go, day and night, and that allows you then to interpret uh, what volumes they're producing, how often they're going, because often patients, as we all do, have difficulty remembering how often you're going in the daytime. I certainly do. 
and it, it also allows one to determine at night time whether there's an increased production of urine. In other words, in a patient over the age of 40, more than a third of 24-hour urinary production, which means that they're producing too much urine at night. Nocturnal polyuria, often due to fluid retention, can be in patients who are overweight, sleep due to sleep apnea, and of course cardiovascular factors often have an important role. And this is, we all see that patients as they're getting older, and indeed ourselves, are having to get up at night at least once. Now having then established from the history with the aid of the bladder diary, it's of course important to have excluded other pathology by urinalysis, a post-voiding residual to check that the patient isn't retaining large volumes. If you've got an underactive bladder, there'll be large residuals. And if you have a large residual, although underactive bladder is avoiding dysfunction, you'll get storage symptoms because of the functional capacity, in other words, the volume voided plus the residual, if you're leaving behind a large residual, then you have a reduced volume that you can tolerate before you have to go and pass urine. Of course, it's very important to ask the patient, armed with the information from the bladder diary, what sort of fluid they're taking in. And it's also important to bear in mind uh, that uh, vegetable matter is 90% or more fluid. So if patients are eating a lot of fruit or vegetables, that can often uh, trigger uh, increased fluid output. It's very important, therefore, as you can see, to have a global view of the patient and not just to make a snap diagnosis. A bladder diary is also essential in terms of biofeedback because the patient will then perceive from that the influence of fluid intake. It allowed them to retrain the bladder, and so it's an important investigation, as I'm sure you'd agree. Thank you. I'm very pleased that you've emphasised the role of the bladder diary because I've heard you talk about it many times over the years. And, of course, it gives a lot of information, not only to us as clinicians, but also to the patients, uh, what their drinking habits are and the influence this may have on their symptoms. And so the patient will sometimes say, do you think I'm drinking too much, doctor? Am I having too much coffee? Or perhaps I've noticed that I have two or three cups of coffee, then my overactive bladder symptoms get worse. So once a patient has already had so-called a behavioural therapy, conservative means uh, such as the lifestyle changes, reducing fluid intake, reducing caffeine, doing uh, pelvic floor exercises, perhaps bladder training, what do you do about a patient who's failed on the behavioural and conservative treatments and then wants to consider uh, oral treatment? Thanks, Paul. I, I'm very pleased that you've emphasised the importance of behavioural therapy and modifying fluid intake and so on. I think people often forget that. And just reaching for the prescription pad, of course, as I'm sure we both agree, based on your comments, we certainly do, uh, is, is not the ideal treatment. Obviously, if the patients fail that approach and armed with the information of the bladder diary, then clearly pharmacotherapy is very helpful. Traditionally, we've relied upon anti-muscarinic therapy, and certainly that's effective. Of course, it has an effect on the detrusor muscle in patients who've got an underactive bladder of any sort. And 
we have to bear that in mind in prescribing it, particularly in male patients where there are residuals of more than 140, 150 mils. In other words, where you're looking at a voiding efficiency of around 40%. If you get a voiding efficiency of more than 40%, then you're ending up with a situation where you may tip somebody towards significant residuals or even retention. That's uncommon, though, with antimuscarinics at current therapeutic doses, as long as you bear that in mind. In female patients, of course, antimuscarinics are very rarely cause retention unless they have a neurological condition such as MS where they're particularly sensitive to that or where they have an underactive bladder. And again, emphasising the importance of having checked a post-voiding residual or certainly considered it or excluded a palpable bladder and, of course, the bladder diary. With antimuscarinic therapy, you, dose titration is important. In many drugs, there are more than one dose that you can use and I think it's important to warn the patient about the potential side effects and explain to them how it works and suggest after two or three weeks if a lower dose, particularly if you're using a drug such as solifenacin, for instance, uh, five milligrams, they could try, as long as they're not getting significant side effects, to increase the dose up to 10 milligrams. And that's a very effective way of the patient dose titrating before they come and see you at six to eight weeks after you have commenced the therapy. More recently, the beta-3 agonist Mirabegron has been introduced into clinical practice. And this, again, is an effective drug. It doesn't have anticholinergic side effects, although it potentially relaxes the bladder by an action on the sensory mechanisms I've mentioned. It doesn't seem to increase residuals. And it doesn't cause dry mouth or the anti other anti-muscarinic side effects, such as uh, a degree of constipation, heartburn, etc., which, of course, are rare as a significant problem in the modern antimuscarinics such as solifenacin. Mirabegron's available as two doses, 25 milligrams and 50 milligrams, but in the majority of patients you use 50 milligrams. 25 milligrams is only for patients where you have uh, hepatic dysfunction or where, where you're uh, using a drug which uses the same metabolic pathway. There are very few of those uh, and uh, metoprolol, for instance, one of them. Beta blockers, though, apart from metoprolol, are not contraindicated. There is a concern out there that mirabegron uh, causes hypertension, but certainly the large data set which we looked at, the large data set from real-life clinical practice, didn't show any evidence uh, that there was a, a significant development of hypertension with this and it's only in patients with a blood pressure of more than 180 over 110 where it's contraindicated. It seems to therefore be very safe and tolerable and indeed from the GP research database which Adrian and Wag and myself uh, analysed and reported a study from we showed that uh, Mirabegron was much better tolerated than antimuscarinics with persistence out to a year in at least 40% of patients. Of course, if you've found that a patient has not got an ideal uh, outcome from either of these agents, then you can consider adding both together. And I normally would add Mirabegron to 50, sorry, 50 milligrams of Mirabegron to 5 milligrams of solifenacin. You can certainly see an added benefit doing that. Of course, if they don't 
obtain an adequate response to this approach in the majority of patients do in clinical practice, you can consider moving on to other forms of therapy. Oh, thank you. That, that makes it very clear. And certainly, I think the idea of getting the patient involved in their management, the decision perhaps to increase the dosage of an anticholinergic drug uh, is very important. But we all know there are some patients who can't be adequately managed uh, just on drug. So will you talk to us about the current treatment landscape for overactive bladder? Thanks, Paul. Yes, you do find that we have to, in a number of patients, consider moving on from drug therapy, although that's at a specialist level. I think in real-life clinical practice, the majority of patients will respond to oral therapy. Now, I think the premise here is to realise that what we're dealing with is a storage problem where the sensation of urgency is the primary driver of the symptom complex. And the reason I emphasise that again is because the concept out there that many people have is that what we're trying to do is to inhibit the detrusor muscle to treat urodynamic detrusor overactivity. But in fact, what we're trying to do is to target the sensory mechanisms. And obviously, if the drug therapy hasn't done that, then we have to consider moving on to third-line therapy. And of course, the options are either intravesical injection into the detrusor muscle and submucosal space of botulinum toxin or alternatively sacral neuromodulation. Now botulinum toxin is used for many different indications. Most people think of it in terms of cosmetic use. Of course it's also used for treatment of migraine or spastic conditions affecting the striated muscle. And I think that what one has to realise if you look at it from a multidisciplinary approach is it's been now well recognised to be acting on sensory mechanisms. There's no doubt that the injection of botulinum toxin into the detrusor can cause retention, but it's more common the older you are, and even then the prevalence rate of retention in non-neuropathic patients is only around the sort of 5-6% to 6 level. So of course it does inhibit the detrusor muscle, but its primary effect is on sensory mechanisms on urgency. And, of course, if one's looking at sacral neuromodulation, that's acting at the level of the lower spinal cord, nowhere near the detrusor muscle, and is also effective. But it's much more expensive uh, and labour-intensive to institute than botulinum toxin. So in routine clinical practice, it's less commonly used. Of course... Uh, there's also posterior tibial nerve stimulation, which can be used. And again, that's acting rather akin to the work from acupuncture and presumably on sensory mechanisms. It has been used quite commonly, but it's very labour-intensive because of the need to apply that on a regular basis to the patient. So certainly in our practice, we, we don't use that uh, very often. Uh, uh, we rely more upon botulinum toxin treatment. So you've given a very good summary of the treatments divided into lifestyle and behavioural therapies, then drug therapies, and then possibly going on to botulinum toxin injections to the detrusor or sacral nerve stimulation. But how do you see the therapeutic landscape changing or 
the major changes that have occurred. Thanks, Paul. And I think that what we have to recognise in terms of the changing therapeutic landscape is that the recognition that you need to have a comprehensive assessment of the patient. The bladder diary is widely available to everybody. It's not very commonly used. And I'm sure that one of the reasons we see a significant placebo response in most drug studies is because it's the first time that the patient's actually used a bladder diary and it's that biofeedback approach and the modification of fluid intake which has a significant impact for many patients. So recognition of that and implementation of that according to the nice quality standards is extremely important. There's also recognition of the judicious use of the agents and I think the principle of combination of an anti-muscarinic and a beta-3 is an important one because by using a lower dose of any agent potentially in this context of the anti-muscarinic you can reduce the prevalence of adverse events which are can be troublesome but they're not dangerous and improve the efficacy by using two different mechanisms of action. So it's a recognition that both classes of agent are now equal first line in terms of potential use, which is important. There's also the recognition that it's important to refer patients at an earlier stage if they're not responding to initial treatment in primary care so we can actually improve their quality of life in a condition which is clearly very disruptive of lifestyle. Well, thank you very much. I think you've made a number of extremely important points and I'd like to just again highlight the issue of the bladder diary. I think it really is the fulcrum of of assessment and of treatment and I think we have a long tradition in the UK at least uh, of doing this. We understand the advantages. I think the other point you made which is extremely important is to be honest with the patient about our limitations in understanding the origin of overactive bladder and the fact that often we cannot cure the patient but we can improve their quality of life. So setting their goals and expectations at a reasonable level I think you would agree is a very important part of managing the overactive bladder. So many thanks, Professor Chappell, for joining us. Thank you, Professor Abrams. And I'd like to just emphasise also the amazing amount of work that you've done on this area. And as a major thought leader, the contribution you've made to changing opinion in this area, particularly emphasising that symptoms are not condition or disease specific. And I think recognition of what we're dealing with is the most important factor recognition that we're dealing with these lifestyle disrupting conditions such as overactive bladder and the storage component which influences patients quality of life is so very important so i'm most grateful to you for allowing me to contribute to this podcast today and i think getting this message across is going to be so very important improving the quality of life of our patients thank you Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Urgent Matters podcast series. And we hope that this has helped share further insights into overactive bladder. We would like to thank Estellas for their kind support in sponsoring this podcast. 
Please stay tuned for the next episode where we continue to explore key insights from experts in the field of OAB.